Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Invisible Trillions, How Financial Secrecy is Imperiling Capitalism and Democracy and the Way to Renew Our Broken System. That's a lot in the subtitle, but the title is Invisible Trillions by Raymond Baker, and it discusses how basically we live in almost this quadrillion-dollar economy, global economy, and a lot of the money is corrupt. We'll describe what that means in the podcast. Raymond Baker talks about the interweaving between capitalism and democracy and whether it's a good or bad thing across the world. And we discuss all the ramifications. I do think maybe capitalism might not be the right word because I think it leaves out the innovation aspect of capitalism, but the examples Raymond provides in the book and in the podcast and the techniques and the actual experiences and situations he recounts are very real and very serious, and it really does involve trillions of dollars and is worth paying attention to. So without further ado, let's go and talk about all the invisible trillions missing in the world economy. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So Raymond, before we get into all the depressing stuff in your book, which is fascinating and I have notes all over the place in it, you seem incredibly healthy. You're 87, you're writing books, you're looking good. What's the secret to quality longevity? Exercise. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, and I, and I, the, the real secret is good genes. Um, my mother lived to be a hundred. My father lived to be 93 and I've, exercised all my life and try to stay in reasonably good shape. So Raymond, your book, Invisible Trillions, is fascinating. Like You basically describe how over the past several decades, as capitalism and the financial system has grown into the hundreds of trillions, even quadrillions in some cases around the globe, income inequality has risen, corruption has risen, financial crimes has risen, Secrecy in the financial system has been basically baked into the banking system, the legal system, the accounting system, the political system, and democracy has been on the decline basically since the 1950s. You point out that as developing countries grow, 
the more capitalism there is, the more countries sort of drop off democracy towards authoritarianism. So it's a scary book. Well, I, and my first question really is, what event triggered this direction in your thinking and career? Well, you have to go back a long way, James. When I graduated uh, from business school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I got a job teaching business management at the University of New Hampshire because the professor who normally teaches that died one month before the semester started, and they were desperate, they were desperate. to find. They were desperate to find some Paul Raymond. <laughs> so I got the job. And I used that time to think about what I wanted to do. And I decided that I wanted to get a taste of international business without making any long range commitment to the idea, just get a taste of international business. So I interviewed a bunch of uh, companies and I got uh, an offer to go to Iran and another to Nigeria and another to Brazil. Nigeria was the only one that um, allowed me to go immediately. Um, I didn't have to learn a language, didn't have to go through a training program, just step off the plane and start managing a business. And this was 1961, just one year after independence. So I did. Well, Nigeria was an eye opener uh, for me. <laughs> there was lots of corruption. Uh, uh, there was lots of financial skullduggery. And this is pre-Nigeria finding oil. Uh, yes, this was before Nigeria had uh, found commercial quantities of oil. So I began to wonder what's going on here. I soon asked an old coaster what's going on. An old coaster is a British gentleman who's been there forever because Nigeria used to be a British colony. And I asked him, okay, well, tell me, how do you do business in Africa? This guy looked me up one side and down the other and was not the least bit forthcoming. Um, I felt that um, obviously he doesn't like Americans showing up in his ex-British colony just so soon after independence. But being an American, I pressed on and asked him, okay, well, well tell me, how do you price your imported cars and building materials and textiles to sell in the Nigerian market. And he looked at me and he said, price? Price is not a problem. I'm not trying to make a profit. Hmm. Now, Why do you say that? Now, I had just finished Harvard Business School, you know, uh, the, uh, 18 months earlier. And here, one of the early people that I uh, encounter in Nigeria says, I'm not trying to make a profit. What is going on here? It took me a while to understand that what he was talking about was transfer pricing. That is to say, everything that he, he was managing director of a trading company that imported from abroad and sold uh, in the Nigerian market. Everything that he imported from the parent company uh, in the UK was priced at a high level so that all he had to do was to sell it at the same price and the profit margin would go back to the UK just within the price that was being paid for the goods that were being imported. Does that make sense, James? Uh, I'm not sure. So he wouldn't it still be to his incentive to make a profit on the goods he was selling? He is. He, all he had to do was to resell it for the same price at which uh, he bought it because the parent company in the UK 
had already put the markup on it, okay? So the profit margin was built into the invoice that he received. And so how does he make money? Uh, he doesn't. He operates at a break-even point. His job is not to make a profit. His job is just pay the bills for what he's importing. He was a subsidiary of the parent company in the UK. No interest in earning a profit in Nigeria. I still don't understand why that would be. Like, wouldn't the parent company wanna want him to market up a little bit more so they can make even more money? No. All they want him to do is to pay the bill because they have already marked it up in the invoice that they send him. Their profit margin is already in that invoice. Ah, Just, I see. So regardless of whether or not he sells or not, they book the profit. They their... book a profit. That's right. That's exactly right. They book a profit just by having shipped it there. And all he has to do is sell it, even uh, uh, sell it at whatever uh, price they put on it. it doesn't have, he doesn't have to mark it up. It's not his job to make a profit. His job is to help the parent company make a profit back in the UK. So what if he couldn't sell the items though, then eventually they have to take a lot, they have to mark it down as a loss, right? Yeah, that'll happen occasionally, but not very often. So, I mean, in general, doesn't the market determine the price? Like what if Nigeria was going through rough times at that point and they couldn't afford the goods? Well, everybody else was doing the same thing. That's what took me a while to understand. That it was not only that particular company, John Holt Trading Company, it was everybody else that was importing from abroad and selling in the Nigerian market. They were overpricing what they imported so that they were shifting money back out of the country, shifting money out of the country. This is called transfer pricing, uh, or to be more exact, it's abusive transfer pricing. It's transfer pricing that is intended to abuse the norms in the country and just take money uh, out um, uh, going back overseas. Am I making sense? But the money would go from Nigeria to the UK? Yes. But what if there was no money ultimately? Like, again, what if, what if you know, Nigeria was having a slowdown and they couldn't sell the items they thought they could sell? So you take a loss on some items. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 95% of what you import, you sell uh, at the price that you imported it at. And I guess they could sort of decide when they want to take that loss. Sure. They could take that loss in years where they were making a profit in other areas, mm. you know, so they could smooth yes. out their earnings. Yeah. Now, recognize that every other foreign-owned company that I became familiar with was doing the same thing. They were overpricing what was being imported into Nigeria in order to shift their profits out uh, of Nigeria. It took me a while to understand that a great many Nigerians who were doing business, uh, import business, were doing the same thing. They were, um, they were working with their suppliers abroad to mark up the items so that all they had to do was to pay the cost and their money is shifted abroad, and the people they're cooperating uh, with abroad will take the designated uh, percentage and put it in their foreign bank account. Does that make sense? Right. So what's happening is they're booking a profit before they've even made a dime, 
and they're booking the profit in a foreign country, so they they abide by that country's tax laws as opposed to the UK's tax laws. Or the Nigeria's tax laws, yes. Right. Um, That's right. So you're building the profit margin into the price that you're paying for the goods. As I've said, this is called transfer pricing. It's called, you, you are transferring the profit within the price that you are paying. The over-invoicing started in the UK. The UK parent company buys a car for, at that time, $5,000. And they say, okay, we can probably sell this for $6,000 in Nigeria. Therefore, we're going to put the price on it of $6,000. So when it's sold for $6,000 in Nigeria, we get the $6,000 and we've already made $1,000 profit on it just because it is paid for by our subsidiary uh, in Nigeria. Right. So the subsidiary pays for it before it's even sold to a human being. That's right. Yeah. It's similar in a weird way to how Enron would sell books of derivatives to subsidiaries, let's say foreign subsidiaries or other weird subsidiaries, and kind of hide losses that way. All of these mechanisms have a lot of similarities, and you're quite right to um, uh, recall the Enron experience. And, of course, Jeffrey Skillings uh, eventually went to jail for that scheme. In what I'm talking about, which happens across borders, almost nobody ever goes to jail because it's very difficult to see what you're doing. Let me make a fundamental point, James, and we can get there um, perhaps in our further discussion. The misinvoicing of trade moves more illegal money across borders than any other mechanism by far, by far. The misinvoicing of trade. When I say misinvoicing, I mean that you are pricing the goods at a price that has little or no relationship to the value of the goods, the real value. Price and value have become different concepts in the capitalist world over the last half century or more. Price and value are two entirely separate ideas. Okay, so so let's explore that for a second. So in this case, there's incentives. There might be tax incentives. There might be incentives with smoothing profits for shareholder reporting purposes, like the way, the way Enron would, for instance. But overall, if you do this for too long, and if everybody does this, then somebody is left holding the bag. Like it's, it's, a, it's musical chairs. Eventually, you run out of money. Um, eventually, somebody runs out of money. Not you the, right. who are doing it, but somebody else runs out. Somebody who's the last person to sit in the chair. You, you made an interesting point when you raised the question of taxes. When the misinvoicing of trade is done between richer countries, let's say in transactions between the United States and Germany, the purpose of, of misinvoicing transactions in trade between um, richer countries is for the purpose of tax evasion. That's the reason you do it. You're trying to avoid paying taxes in uh, um, in Germany, so you price something at a high level and sell it at a break-even point so you don't earn any profit in Germany. Um, you're, it's done for tax evasion. 
I learned something else uh, during the years that I lived in Nigeria, and that is the motivation is different in transactions between richer countries and poorer countries. It's not so much tax evasion. It's a question of converting soft currencies into hard currencies. That's the motivation. You're trying to get your money out of those weak uh, um, naira in Nigeria and convert it into dollars or pounds or euros, a hard currency. So the motivation differs depending on with whom you are trading. Ah, I see. Because if your foreign subsidiary is sitting on profits, you eventually want to get those profits home, but in your own currency and again, without having to pay the taxes in your home. You want to keep the taxes foreign. That's exactly right. So you run your business so that you don't make a profit in uh, your Nigerian subsidiary or Brazilian or Indian or Egyptian or other subsidiary. You, you run your company so that you don't make a profit there and your money is transferred back to the parent company within the trading transactions between you and the parent company. Am I making sense? Yes. So how much, like, of global GDP, what percentage do you think is in these kind of, like, even right now to this day, in these kind of semi-illegal trades? I say semi-illegal because the laws in every country are different, and, and some countries, legal and ethical, are, are not linked either. So... I don't know that I can tell you a percentage. I can tell you, I can work around that subject a little bit. First, I've never known a multinational, multi-billion dollar, multi-product corporation that did not do exactly what I'm talking about. So let's take Apple as an example. And you have Apple as an example in the book. Yeah. Apple um, invented a number of schemes for transferring the value of their intellectual property across borders and eventually into tax-free uh, jurisdictions such as uh, the Bahamas. Apple was an early creator of the mechanisms for doing this. Every other multinational corporation in some parts of its business does the same thing. And let me ask you a question, like, and this is this gets really down to basics, and I may be naive about this. Who is the victim in this? The victims in, in these uh, cross-border transactions are um, the poorer people in those, uh, in those countries. Let's take Nigeria as an example. Nigeria, in my estimation, has lost at least a half a trillion dollars through the mispricing of transactions, including uh, oil uh, that is underpriced going out of Nigeria. At the same time, Nigeria has 100 million people living in absolute poverty. I have watched this country ship hundreds of, of billions of dollars illegally into foreign economies, into the UK, into the US, into Dubai, into other parts of Europe and so forth, leaving poor people behind. It's the poor people that suffer. Now, is that because their their soft currency is basically fleeing the country into these harder currencies? So there's less money. The, the money supply that stays in Nigeria doesn't circulate. It goes. It leaves the country. That's not a bad explanation. So, so, but what about when they have oil? 
Now they're exporting something that they've created. And so hard dollars come to Nigeria. Um, yes. And since the government owns and controls a, a great deal of the uh, mechanisms for producing oil, government officials uh, can manipulate transactions so that they are profiting uh, from that corruption. There's an enormous amount of corruption in the oil industry in Nigeria, as there is in the oil industry in most developing uh, countries. Right. So when you take corruption like that, and, and Venezuela is like also a notable example, or, or Russia is a notable example, where basically in order for oil to get from one of these countries to, let's say, the U.S., it might go through a corporation run by the friend of the president or whatever. So some money siphoned off along the way. But is this a statement against capitalism or are these companies, are these countries like pre-capitalist? They're still dealing with their kind of authoritarian, authoritarian uh, beginnings. Uh, that's a fair question. And in my judgment, it has become a criticism of the way that capitalism is operating, which is why I wrote my book. Let me go back to Nigeria for a minute. My wife and I lived there through the Nigerian Civil War, the Biafran conflict. This was not long after I had set up uh, on my own. And in the midst of the Civil War, it occurred to me that I am playing a zero-sum game here. I am going to lose everything, or I'm going to figure out somehow to uh, try to uh, come out of this alive. So I made a decision to start buying small and medium-sized companies that I could afford to buy, and I did that in the Civil War, um, buying companies from people who were smarter than me and selling out. I bought their businesses. And I came out at the end of the Civil War with two manufacturing companies and a trucking business. I had a consulting practice all along. I created a financial holding company. We borrowed a lot of money, expanded our businesses, and did very, very well. So right after the end of the Nigerian Civil War, feeling good, my wife and I moved into a lovely home on uh, the water next to a creek, a big creek is like 500 yards across. Um, and we had, a, we had a, a beautiful home. Across the creek were the American embassy and the Soviet embassy. Hmm. I used to sit on my patio under the shade trees and spend hours looking at those two embassies over there, thinking to myself, neither the American system of capitalism nor the Soviet system of socialism is working for the majority of the people in Nigeria. Why not? I was asking myself this question over and over and over again. It was another one of those experiences that dawned on me as to what was going on. And I, I realized it's neither capitalism nor is it socialism that's doing anything for the poor of Nigeria and the poor in many, many, many other countries of the world. Why not? So I was asking myself those kinds of questions um, 50 years ago. When you answer the question, why not, is it a statement on their systems of government or is it a statement on, because for instance, government 
might not have the same needs or agenda as individuals. So like the heads of a corporation might want to build a market in Nigeria. They might want to create an iPhone that they could sell to people in, in Nigeria, for instance, and have all good intentions. But the American government or the U or in, in this case, the Soviet government back in the day, they might have had a different agenda, which is to control Nigeria's vote in the UN, to have um, a place where they could put a military base, whatever their agenda was. That's different from a capitalist agenda. Yeah. Is there a question there? Yeah. Is that is that it was it the American government or the American people? Soviet government or Soviet people that had kind of bad incentives or a bad agenda towards the poor in Nigeria? I think it was a misunderstanding of what it takes to um, produce economic development. You're not producing economic development for the people in Nigeria when you are unseen and unrecognized, transferring all of your profits out so that you don't have to pay taxes in Nigeria, you don't have to raise the salaries of the people you're employed in Nigeria, uh, and so forth. You don't have to do any of that if you're operating at a break-even point. There are thousands of foreign-owned companies in the developing world, whether Nigeria or elsewhere, that are operating at break-even point, which means that they're finding ways of shifting their profit abroad so that those profits do not show up on their financial statements in the country out of which the money is coming. So the problem seems to be, like take take a, a gross example, like the Cayman Islands. So the Cayman Islands, it comes from the top down, like the government basically sets the banking laws and those banking laws are favorable towards foreign companies coming in there to do their tax shenanigans and that goes against the agendas of, let's say, the poor in the Cayman Islands or Bermuda or even Ireland, which was a notable uh, tax haven, as Correct. you point out in the book. Correct. So again, what I'm wondering is, is this an indictment about capitalism or do we need to start saying, hey, you can't do business in countries that are not aligned with the interests of their, the majority of their citizens? I don't know how you take the second course of action, I do know how you can straighten out the first option. And the way you do that is by requiring greater transparency and accountability in capitalism's operations. You mentioned the Cayman Islands. The Cayman Islands is home to tens of thousands of disguised corporations where nobody knows who owns those businesses except the company formation agent. And he's not telling anybody because he's not required to tell anybody. So you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of disguised corporations where nobody knows who owns them. Nobody can find out who owns those entities. That's a, a major function within the way that we are currently operating the capitalist system. And it enables, it facilitates this movement of illicit money across borders, benefiting the rich and impoverishing the poor. Of those countries. Out of those poor countries. Right. So so what I'm wondering is, <laughs> are there ways to more organically uh, solve this problem? For instance, lowering, and this might lead to another problem you mentioned in the book, which is income inequality and wealth inequality. But what about lowering corporate taxes so they don't feel as much incentive to do all these foreign company shenanigans. 
I'm not in favor of lowering uh, corporate taxes because uh, no matter what level they are, they'll still be avoided uh, um, and uh, uh, evaded. No, the way to the the way to solve this problem is is to get rid of the secrecy mechanisms that uh, we have created in uh, uh, the capitalist system. It's not just disguised corporations. There are all sorts of things that we've done to create ways in which capitalism can operate in secret, where their activities cannot be recognized by uh, regulators or legislators or governments or so forth. Capitalism has developed ways to operate in secret, and these mechanisms allow capitalism to function effectively beyond the control of the forces of democracy. Wondrium is an educational platform that has documentaries, series, lessons, how-tos, and more, all together covering just about anything you and I can imagine. There's a huge selection of videos and video courses, over 8,000 hours worth of courses. Flexibility is switched to audio only, which is great for multitasking. Superb quality programs that are expert-led, easy to follow, beautifully filmed, completely accessible. You can watch and listen on uh, in your phone, tablet, TV, computer, no commercials, no tests, no stress. Just, just the way I like it. I hate any stress involved with learning. And it's, you know, any subject you could possibly want, there's a course for it on Wondrium. So learn about what you love and love learning about it with Wondrium. Do what I did. Sign up for Wondrium now. Wondrium is offering my listeners, that means anybody listening to this right now, a 23-day free trial. But it's only available if you sign up through the special URL they gave me. Go to wondrium.com slash James. Just check it out. Check out all the courses they offer. It's amazing like how much is on this platform. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M, wondrium.com slash James. Wondrium.com slash James. Oh my God, when I was locked in during the pandemic, I couldn't stand not being able to breathe outside. But this is not about COVID or lockdowns. This is about how indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. And in some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. And that's a problem. So there was a 2020 report that found that nearly half the population, almost 165 million people in the US are living in areas with unhealthy levels of ozone, or air pollution. So let Air Doctor filter out dangerous contaminants and allergens so your lungs don't have to. It uses an ultra HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses. I'm sure a lot of untested bacteria as well, but we don't know because it's untested. Allergens can vary in size, but the average pollen size is about 25 microns. That's really small. An Air Doctor virtually removes 100% particles as small as 0.003 microns in size. An Air Doctor 3000 is a purifier powerful enough to circulate the air four times per hour in a 638 plus square foot room, which is 
not quite as large as the apartment Jay used to live in in New York City. Jay, yours was like 700 square feet in New York, right? Yes, 700 square feet with 300 square feet living space and 350 bedroom. And you had like the largest dog in the world as your roommate. Yeah, exactly. He only can walk. He, he can't even walk. He literally sleep on one spot. The next thing he just walked to a step and sleep on another stop. Well, if you were allergic to dogs, you would need the Air Doctor 3000. And Air Doctor features whisper jet fans that are 30% quieter than the fans found in ordinary air purifiers. It's no wonder Air Doctor has been covered by media outlets, including CNN, ABC, and the James Aldrich Show. And I know because I wanted to test this out before being able to talk about it. I can't really tell if the air is not having allergens that are 0.003 microns in size, but I can tell among the members of my family who have allergies that they do seem to have fewer allergies, sneezing, coughing, and so on. So I like that. I'm going to continue using it. Air Doctor comes with a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code JAMES. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 40% off. I mean, just by knowing, just by listening to this podcast, you can get 40% off, and that's important. So lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R. That's Air Doctor, that's spelled out Air Doctor Pro, P-R-O, airdoctorpro.com and use promo code James. You know, in some cases, is secrecy ever justified? So for instance, Switzerland has a whole culture of secrecy around their financial system. And while that has been abused probably by many corrupt leaders having secret bank accounts in Switzerland after they steal all the money from their country, it's also provided a way for people fleeing war situations to get their money out without it necessarily being tracked and and, and so on. Let's draw a difference between um, people fleeing the Holocaust and what exists today. I will not entertain an argument uh, that Switzerland was doing something wrong in taking uh, the assets of people escaping the Holocaust. No, I'm not going to argue that. I am saying that within the last 30 or 40 years, Switzerland has continued to take every uh, just about every dollar of stolen money uh, that it can get its hands on. And that is impoverishing the countries uh, out of which that money comes. Let me put it this way. Switzerland has taken some steps to try to clean up its activities within its borders. But Swiss banks now have very active subsidiaries in Singapore and Hong Kong and elsewhere that are doing the same thing uh, uh, in those jurisdictions that their own home country banks used to do before. And so... In the cases of places like, let's say, Venezuela, or you know, we've been we've been talking a lot about Nigeria, but these countries that are that are or were third world, then they discover oil and they start generating enormous profits from that, tens of billions of dollars in profits from that, and it's clear a majority of the country still lives below the poverty line, which is extremely poor, the global poverty line. Where are the sanctions? Where are the where is the outrage? Like, obviously, we're not friends with Venezuela, but like Nigeria, we partner with all the time and other African countries. Where is the outrage where we could do something perhaps in our relationship with them? 
Um, there's not a whole lot of outrage. We are primarily interested in those countries supporting our other strategic and foreign policy concerns, somewhat less interested in how their own poor people um, are getting along. This is true across uh, uh, a, a great many uh, developing countries. We want their support um, in our strategic and um, international goals much more than we want to try to help their poor people uh, survive. And I agree with you. But what I wonder is, is it the fault of the system or the fault of the people running, the short-sightedness of the people running government? So like, there's a saying, you know, better, you either trade bullets or you trade dollars. So it's so it's actually to our more macro incentive to make a third world country a first world country because then they become a legit trading partner and they favor democracy and so on. So why don't we see this in the long term picture that we create allies by making them wealthy, by making their poor wealthier? Uh, another fair question, uh, James. I think that that should be um, our goal. But our policies are normally more short-term than that. I wrote an earlier book called Capitalism's Achilles' Heel. And in that book, the subtitle of part one of the book was, We Like the Money. We like the money that pours out of those countries into our coffers. So you've mentioned Venezuela. Almost all of Venezuela's stolen profits uh, since Maduro came to power have ended up in the United States. Some of it has gone to Switzerland, but most of it has come to the United States. Had I been um, uh, Joe Biden, elected president, I would have taken much, much stronger action against uh, Venezuela and the uh, Maduro regime. To my thinking, it's absolutely outrageous that that man is seemingly solidifying uh, himself um, while uh, he and his cronies continue to rob the nation blind. You mean Maduro? Yes. And so so why aren't we taking a harder stance, particularly with countries we're not even that friendly with, like Venezuela? And you're right, like half of Florida's, I don't, I don't want to exaggerate on Florida, but a lot of money flows from Venezuela, as you mentioned in the book, into, into Florida real estate. I, I've seen it myself having when I lived there. Yep. Why don't we do it? We like the money. I'm serious. It's it's that simple. We like the money that flows from other countries into our economies, strengthening our economies. And that's a very short run calculation as to what's in the best interest of the United States going forward. But it is the calculation. We like the money. And I agree with you. And what I wonder is, again, is that is that coming from the capitalists or is that coming from the politicians Both. who don't really understand how capitalism works? Both. Hmm. Capitalism at its highest levels has enormous influence on our own political structure to the extent that capitalism can pretty much get away with a lot of shenanigans that benefit capitalism, even though it's hurting other people around the world. You know, so you, you've described how there's enormous trillion-dollar or multi-billion-dollar industries set up to kind of enable all this to happen. Like there's the banking system, there's the legal system, there's you know the taxation system. Uh, all this sort of encourages and has kind of um, institutionalized 
the criminal activity that's taking place. And it's not just this hiding of profits. Uh, you know, you mentioned everything from drug trafficking to terrorism to, you know, all sorts of crimes that are kind of using these techniques also to kind of hide money and transfer money around. And uh, again, it seems like we're getting further and further from, you know, where we'd like to be in terms of, in terms of capitalism. I think there, an argument can be made in, in that direction. I say that despite the fact that there are a few little things that are happening to begin to change the situation. But the reason I wrote my book is because after my first book was published in 2005, I and colleagues set up an organization called Global Financial Integrity, and we, have, we are not satisfied with the progress that we are making toward financial integrity. So I thought that um, the only thing I can do is to write another book and to raise the level of these concerns. We're dealing with a problem that cuts to the core of the way capitalism is operating and therefore to the core of the democratic capitalist system. Yeah, because like you mentioned, you give a great example when you describe the situation in Mozambique where Credit Suisse, which is a well-known bank in Switzerland, but also in the U.S. and other places, Credit Suisse puts together a deal with the Mozambique heads of government, essentially, mm -hmm. where basically a billion dollars is transferred into their private bank accounts and the people of Mozambique never see it. I would say the capitalism part of that is that Credit Suisse is incentivized to make profits, so they'll put together a deal no matter what. And the way they were able to convince Mozambique to do this is to personally benefit the politicians as opposed to the people. So that's how kind of capitalism swoops this all over, is that, is that you know, the poor is just never discussed. It's just, hey, everybody's going to make money who's involved in this deal. And, and their money flows out of the system when they pay back their debts or, or when they're unable to pay back their debts, they, they have other problems. So to some extent, you're saying we export corruption on the bridge of capitalism. But I'm wondering to what extent that might be balanced by we also export innovation. You know, people in other countries have iPhones, for instance, and they have medicine and they have they can build bridges and, and so on. One doesn't justify the other. I agree with you. But I'm wondering, can you have one without the other? Of course you can, but not the way that we're operating uh, currently. Uh, you can if we require the capitalist system to operate with greater transparency and accountability. I'll give you a, a simple example. Do you know that there are millions of corporations that don't have to report their financial results to anybody? In the U.S.? Many of them uh, in the U.S. and uh, other countries and so forth. That's ridiculous. Every corporation, every company that is established should be required to report its financials to the financial authorities in that country on an annual basis. This idea that you can operate secretly and not report to anybody, this has to change. So like in the U.S., if I have a U.S.-based company, don't I have to report to the IRS every year what I did? It depends. If you're a multinational corporation, you can have lots of subsidiaries that you say to the Treasury Department, the Internal Revenue Service, these subsidiaries are not of material importance. Therefore, we don't have to report on what they're doing. 
It could be a, um, a single purpose entity established somewhere that helps you um, avoid paying taxes in another country. But you, the multinational, you can, you can specify that that entity is not of material importance. And therefore, you don't have to report on what that uh, subsidiary is doing. Let's take McDonald's as an example, because McDonald's operates in, let's say, every single country, and they must be incorporated in every single country, I'm assuming. And so to what extent does McDonald's you use this to avoid reporting, let's say, profits in a first world country that they're operating in? I don't know. I don't know mm -hmm. McDonald's financials uh, at all. Um, I, in my book, indicate some examples of corporations that have set up elaborate structures mm -hmm. to uh, operate uh, tax-free and get their money into their hard currency accounts back into uh, the home office books. A lot of corporations do that. McDonald's, I don't have any idea. Um, but in my book, I quote examples of other corporations uh, that use some of these mechanisms. And some of these some of these uh, mechanisms are extremely complicated and convoluted, involving sometimes as many as thirty or forty steps, so that what you're doing is obfuscating uh, all along the way what you're doing, so that you can at the end of the day get away with it and and move those uh, those profits into the parent company coffers in ways that evaded taxes all along the way, invaded regulation along the way, invaded oversight along the way, but eventually end up in the corporate coffers. And, and so it's interesting because in order to do it correctly, you have to make sure it gets away so that, you're, so that it's not audited by your auditors. But in order to do it correctly, you need to have the knowledge of your auditors to do that. How much are the accounting firms that audit these companies involved in actually providing the advice to set up these methods of obfuscating their their profits that's a that's a very a key question auditors for many years in almost all countries were able to advise their clients um, how to use tax evading and tax avoiding techniques and at the same time then audit the company uh, to say that oh you've done this all uh, you've done this all properly in the United States we are trying to 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 separate those two functions um, advice uh, has cannot be given by the same company that's going to do the audit uh, there's a fair amount of crossover in that even in the United States today. But many other countries, the UK, for example, have not separated those two functions so that auditors can advise you on tax evading strategies and then audit your books and say your books are fine. And so it seems like there's this spectrum where, okay, at one end of the spectrum, and I don't know if this is the extreme end or not, but at one end of the spectrum are crimes like, you know, setting up these corporations to put profits abroad so you don't have to pay taxes in the US. At the other end of the spectrum is like what happened in Mozambique or what happens in Venezuela or Russia or even more extreme is what ha what happens with drug trafficking and terrorism and human trafficking and so on. And what I'm wondering is can we distinguish between 
those ends of the spectrum and say, okay, the tax evasion ones are bad and the corruption related ones and criminal enterprise related ones are, are worse. Like, is there a distinction? I, I don't uh, draw a distinction. Obviously terrorist financing is, is terrible and you have to crack down on it. It would be fair to say that uh, going after terrorist financing is more important than going after tax evasion. I won't argue uh, that point. The point that I will make is that all of everything that we're talking about in the realm of crime and corruption and terrorist financing and so forth, every mechanism that is used by those guys has been developed by us in the richer Western countries, all of them. There isn't a single mechanism in the business of moving drug money or human trafficking money or animal poaching money or uh, what have you. There isn't a single element of any of that that hasn't been created by us in the Western countries. We have created the mechanisms that facilitate crime and corruption and tax evasion. And the result of this system that we have created is that it brings a great deal of money uh, into the U.S. economy and the economies of other richer countries. And so do you think things got a little better after 9-11 when they started um, implementing, you know, know your customer rules for banks and, and you know, higher disclosure procedures and so on? That's a, another very interesting question, James. After 9-11, two things happened that were almost uh, opposite. On the one hand, Treasury Department, without making it a written policy, Treasury Department indicated to U.S. banks that you can let that apparently dirty money, you can let that come in so that we will know we can trace it back to where it came from, and in so doing, you will help us identify the terrorist financiers that may have uh, sent money. So the Treasury Department, without making it a stated uh, a policy, eased the focus of the banks on handling laundered money and corrupt money and so forth, so that if the terrorist money came in, we could trace it back to the source and go after the terrorist money. At the same time, we took some steps which helped make life more difficult for the terrorists in financing their activities. They're not out of business. But we took a number of steps focused on terrorist financing to try to push the terrorists out of being able to use the legitimate financial system uh, to move their money. So, for example, you're perhaps familiar with SWIFT, sure. the organization that handles the information on wire transfers. Right. Uh, they don't handle the money. They handle the information on wire transfers. We uh, pushed very hard on SWIFT to open up transactions that we thought were suspicious. And after a great deal of pressure, we forced that. So terrorist uh, financiers are today very reluctant to use wire transfers because SWIFT can turn that information over to um, uh, U.S. authorities. So we did take a number of steps. In fact, 
following 9-11, the United States appointed 51 agencies of the U.S. government to go after terrorist financing. There has never been such a concentration uh, before on going after an element of uh, the financial secrecy system as that. And, and with 51 organs of the U.S. government going after terrorist financing, with us getting access to SWIFT data and with some other steps that we made, we have indeed curtailed substantially the ability of terrorists to use the international financial system. So that brings up an interesting point, though. When we sanction Russia from using SWIFT, does that bite ourselves in our own leg? Because now we can't observe whatever it is they're doing now when they send you know huge money transactions around the world. We've sanctioned uh, some Russian companies not to use SWIFT, uh, but not all. There are okay. still, still Russian companies that are perfectly free to use SWIFT. The larger question is, are the sanctions working? Um, uh, are the financial sanctions working against uh, Russia? And I would say slowly and guardedly, not as fast as they could, because it took us a long time to put them uh, in place. And they're still not entirely uh, complete. There are still oligarchs that have not been sanctioned. Uh, um, I guess we're trying to distinguish between a good oligarch and a bad oligarch. Uh, well, okay, good luck with that one. But I don't think that we used economic sanctions, financial sanctions, as quickly as we should have in the case of uh, Russia's uh, activities in Ukraine. I think we should have been broader and swifter in sanctions. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb. But there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And so I can see how all of this would lead to great income inequality globally. How does this lead to income inequality and, and particularly wealth inequality in the U.S. specifically? The financial secrecy system helps the rich get richer. Um, you have to have a certain degree of, uh, of uh, sophistication and wealth to be able to use the mechanisms of the financial secrecy uh, system, to be smart enough to set up a disguised corporation mm. in the Cayman Islands, or to get a banker to handle uh, your uh, transactions in an anonymous uh, way. You have to be a fairly sophisticated person uh, uh, to do that. When I graduated uh, with my MBA in 1960, the comparison of top executive salaries and workers' wages was uh, about 20 to 1. Today, that ratio between executive salaries and workers' wages is more than 350 to 1. Can I ask, is is that because of a, a very uh, fertile equity market? So a lot of co- a lot of executive compensation is in equity and options as opposed to cash payments. And e- the equity markets have ballooned in the US, you know, far greater than income has. And I wonder if it's if it's weighted by that. It's heavily weighted by that. It's weighted by the 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 whole plethora of sophisticated mechanisms that can be used by the rich that are frankly not available uh, to the uh, to the middle class and the poor because it takes money to get into uh, uh, mechanisms and use those mechanisms uh, to your advantage. Yes, the equity market has driven a good part of that, but so has the financial secrecy system uh, driven a good part of that. 
And and a lot of that financial secrecy system for those corporations are set up again to avoid taxes. And then the question is, who's a better allocator of money to the rest of the country? Is it the government or is it, let's say, the executives of the top 500 companies? And I, and I don't know the answer to this. Like, do we want more iPhones or do we want more government services? I, I both sound ridiculous to me when I put it that way. But but what what do you think? Um, I I think there has to be some very basic rethinking of the relationship of capitalism to democracy, which is why I wrote my book. I think that there need to be changes among the capitalist class, and there need to be changes among the governing uh, uh, class um, to make transparency and accountability more meaningful for both capitalism and democracy. One of the points that I make repeatedly in my book is that capitalism operating in secrecy is incompatible with democracy operating transparently. Those two things can't can't continue uh, as they are uh, at the present time. We've got a capitalist system that is determined to operate in secrecy. We've got a a democratic system that's trying to operate with transparency. And these two basic tenets, capitalism uh, and democracy, in our system are becoming decoupled, no longer operating in sync. As they were operating in sync when I got my uh, MBA uh, 15 years after the end of World War II. And this, could, this, of course, leads to more and more countries choosing authoritarian regimes over democracy because they're seeing democracy not working in, 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 in places maybe like the U.S. Why do you think China has been so successful in convincing Africa to participate in their Belt and Road Initiative as opposed to the U.S. going in there and building roads? Why doesn't the U.S. go in there and building roads? Why are we letting the Chinese do it? Well, the Chinese... Um... And I mean the Chinese government, of course, but yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Chinese government has been using its wealth to buy political uh, support all over the world, and they are continuing uh, uh, to do that. Should we be in a um, head-to-head competition with China in doing that sort of thing, in, in building infrastructure uh, in Africa? I uh, I don't know. I'm I'm a little hesitant to get into a, a direct competition to see who can throw more money at Africa than anybody else. I think what we have to sell is democracy, but it is a harder sale um, when democracy's companion ideology, capitalism, is known by every government in the developing world to be contributing to sucking money out of their countries into foreign bank accounts. That becomes a tougher sell when the companion ideology to democracy, that is capitalism, is contributing to undermining what we're talking about in these countries. Does this make sense, James? Yes. So what do you think is going to happen? What's the future? Well, in my opinion, the future is the democratic capitalist system has to uh, re-energize its joint functions and re-energize around principles of transparency and accountability, or we risk uh, the failure of the democratic capitalist system. 
if capitalism cannot solve the problem of economic inequality, cannot produce a more equal society, then I think capitalism will drag down democracy and eventually the democratic capitalist system. I hope that doesn't happen. It doesn't have to happen, but it can only be changed with a very substantial alteration of the way that we are operating the capitalist component in our two-part system. What makes me a little nervous is that realistically, it's not going to happen because the people pulling the strings and, and the politicians pulling the strings are also benefiting from the way the system is set up, just like they are in the most corrupt countries. Whether we're as corrupt as Venezuela or Mozambique, I, I don't think the U.S. government is, but maybe we're a small percentage of that. And that's enough to keep the system going without check. Um, I agree with you. And it will be difficult, which again is why I wrote my book. A lot of us in this space have been trying to uh, address particular aspects of financial secrecy and corruption and money laundering and terrorism and so on. We've been working on particular little aspects of this and not making very much progress. So the reason that I wrote my book is to try to elevate the issues that we're talking about to a, a higher level, to try to get people to understand that we are dealing with a systemic issue, not a lot of little um, uh, smaller issues. Now, right. the way that climate change was addressed influenced uh, my thinking uh, on this. For 30 years, uh, scientists uh, knew about global warming. They had good data. They were talking about climate change and so forth. And it wasn't sinking in to people's thinking. Finally, along comes Al Gore. And he produces films and he produces documentaries and he uh, uh, does talks. And he succeeded in driving the issue of climate change into the global consciousness to the extent that now most uh, people uh, are certainly aware of the threat of climate change and are focused on ways that we can uh, try to solve this problem. We haven't gotten to that point in understanding the strains within the democratic capitalist system, the strains within capitalism. So part of the reason I'm trying, uh, I wrote my book is to try to elevate these issues so that people understand that we are dealing with a systemic problem. We are dealing with a problem that poses an existential threat to the democratic capitalist system. Well, Raymond Baker, you certainly do a great job of describing the history of these events, the history of capitalism over the past 70 years and, and how it's morphed into uh, uh, using more of these secret means to ship money around and, and allow for corruption and, and all sorts of criminal activity, including whether it's tax evasion or terrorism or drug trafficking or whatever. Your book, it's called Invisible Trillions, and it literally describes the trillions of dollars that are going invisible in this system and how it's hurting the people that capitalism was initially set up to help. So it's a great book to increase your knowledge of what's happening and the history of these events and what's going on and 
I didn't know a lot of things in this book. So Raymond, thanks for, for coming on the podcast and thanks for writing this, this book. Entirely my pleasure, James. Thank you. Uh, um, I'm available anytime. Excellent. Thank you, Raymond. Okay. Thank you. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.